South Sudan's civil war from 2013 to 2018, often fought along ethnic lines, claimed an estimated 400,000 lives, triggered a famine, and created Africa's biggest refugee crisis since the 1994 genocide in Rwanda. Six days after a major agreement was sealed between South Sudan's rival leaders, fighting erupted in the north of the country. Military officials of President Salva Kiir and the Vice President Riek Machar made the announcement while calling for a ceasefire in the capital Juba on Friday. The UN human rights investigators say crimes being committed by all sides in the conflict include rape, castrations and ethnic abuses. Many victims told us that they had not launched formal complaints in connection with violations due to fear of reprisal as many violations were allegedly perpetrated by prominent figures and powerful institutions. South Sudanese army is requesting the UN to provide names of officers suspected of having committed crimes so that it can take action. I warmly welcome you to our next Let's Talk Human Rights podcast episode. My name is Masi Chabam Daka, and I am happy that you have tuned in again. Our journey today takes us to the youngest independent country in sub-Saharan Africa, South Sudan. The Republic of South Sudan, a landlocked country bordered by Ethiopia, Sudan, Central African Republic, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Uganda, and Kenya. As of the year 2020, the population was estimated at around 11 million people and is expected to grow to 19 million by 2050. Juba is its capital and largest city. South Sudan gained independence from Sudan in 2011, marking a promised restart and hope for its people, having long endured years of conflict and subjugation from its now neighboring country, Sudan. With a resilient nation fervently boasting a culture of organized resistance movements, even against the throes of armed resistance movements, which dominate the terrain, South Sudanese people do have a voice, and they use it. In an article published in April 2022 by journalist Kaya Kumalo for the Friedrich Naumann Foundation, he notes, and I quote, The oil-rich South Sudan has been engulfed in ethnic violence since December 2013, and over 400,000 people have died since the conflict started. Numerous attempts to build peace have failed, including the pact that saw opposition leader Riek Machar return as vice president in 2016, only to run away as fighting didn't stop. A second peace settlement was signed in 2018 which mainly held with warring parties forming a coalition in 2020, and Salva Kiir and Riek Machar trying one more time to run as the country's president and vice president, respectively. End quote. Yet here we are again, at the other end of another ceasefire and peace agreement. The starting point of our analysis into the situation in South Sudan fundamentally should begin where the country's position and stance is on international instruments and standard international practices for the recognition of human rights. 
Let us take a moment to remind ourselves of the United Nations Declaration on Human Rights Defenders, which was adopted by consensus by the General Assembly in 1998 on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. While the Declaration is not a legally binding instrument, it contains principles and rights that are based on human rights standards enshrined in other legally binding international instruments. Moreover, the adoption of the Declaration by the General Assembly by consensus represents a very strong commitment by states to its implementation. Today, I am very pleased to be joined by Honorable Ms. Anim Risasi Amitai and Ms. Merikaje Lona Nanjia. Anim is a South Sudanese peace, women, youth development advocate and politician who has dedicated herself to ensuring peace and prosperity in South Sudan and in East Africa region through her various national, regional, continental and global engagements. With vast experience in government communications and advocacy, Anim previously served as lead speechwriter for South Sudan's former first vice president and led the process of crafting South Sudan's policy at several multilateral engagements, including the United Nations General Assembly, United Nations Human Rights Council, and the Commission on the Status of Women, to mention but a few. Anim is a strong campaigner for equality in nationality and citizenship rights, in particular for marginalized minority communities, including women. Anim is an avid sports enthusiast and speaks English, French, Italian, Japanese, and basic Arabic. Merikaje Lona Nanjia is a graduate from the University of Nairobi. She served as an advocacy and lobby focal person for the Citizens for Peace and Justice, which is a coalition of civil society representatives, academics, and individual activists from South Sudan. From 2014 to 2015, she was also one of the civil society negotiators at the multi-stakeholder Intergovernmental Authority for Development, IGAD-led South Sudan peace negotiations in Addis Ababa. Merikaje was instrumental in organizing the first ever South Sudan National Civil Society Convention after South Sudan's independence in July 2011. Currently serving as the Secretary General of South Sudan Democratic Engagement, Monitoring and Observation Program, also known as SUDAMOP, an organization that made a significant contribution in monitoring and observation of the 2010 Sudan general election and the 2011 Southern Sudan referendum for self-determination. Merikaja helped establish SUDAMOP and now the organization has grown to focus on issues of governance and democracy, gender mainstreaming, and conflict mitigation. In recent years, Merikaje has been keen and engaged in advancing the reform and transformation agenda through legislative review, development processes, and other national level advocacy efforts. She represents the civil society at the ongoing public finance management reform process in South Sudan at the level of the Oversight Committee. In 2020, Merikaje was recognized among global human rights defenders 
and awarded the prestigious Franco-German Award for Human Rights Defenders. Today, I invite Anim and Merrick Hajelona to share their views, experiences, and reflect on the long-prevailing conflict situation and the dwindling space for human rights in South Sudan. Anim, Merrick Hajelona, I welcome you. And let me take this opportunity to congratulate you both on a sterling record and accolades in both your areas of work, respectively. Our episode today is titled The Battle for the Soul of South Sudan, The Tipping Scales of Politicking and Human Sacrifice, Another Ceasefire and Another Peace Agreement. Yet the only two victors or benefactors from this process are Salva Kiir and Rik Mashar with their power plays. Anim, perhaps if I could direct this question to you, why do we find ourselves here again? And what do the people in South Sudan understand about the conflict? Um, thank you so much, Pastor Shaba, um, for having me on this podcast. It's, it's really strange that 11 years down the road after South Sudan got independence, that we find ourselves in a situation where the elite are still you know, fighting over power, that for the ordinary person who is me, who is Lorna, who is any other young South Sudanese girl, that access to basic education, to healthcare, to um, water, to any other basic service seems like a dream, that it's something that only a few have a privilege to get. And, and it's, it's just sad, you know, but also the sense of lack of optimism for what we dreamt about for the future, that um, for South Sudan, you know, independence really didn't mean freedom, that while the country got independence, freedom is something that is completely different. And freedom is me being able to have safe drinking water, is me not having to depend on food rations, is me not having to, to go to a hospital and be able to get the basic medical services. Why do we find ourselves in this situation again 11 years later? And maybe if you add the 33 years of the conflict, why do we find ourselves in that situation? I think that um, anyone who's had the opportunity to be a leader of this country have sort of forgotten why we struggled for so long to leave oppression, to be sort of plucked away from the jaws of oppression. And it became about instant gratification, what I could do for myself right now. And, and no one is excluded, whether it's leaders in politics, whether it's leaders in civil society or leaders in um, business. Each and every one of us sort of didn't take an inward look on the aspirations that everyone hoped on for, for so long. We just thought about how can we instantly gratify ourselves. And, and that's why we now have a struggle for power. That's now we, why we, people care about positions instead of what responsibilities they can do to their people. Merikaje, taking on from what Anim has just shared, how do you perceive the ongoing presence of international agencies, missions posted in South Sudan? Anim speaks to the 33-year-long conflict plus now the 11 years since independence. Who are these missions ultimately serving? Well, thank you very much. I 
First and foremost, I must say thanks for hosting me for this conversation. As an activist, it's usually a moment of reflection and a moment of rethinking where are we. And I'm glad you're asking this question. Coming to the presence of international agencies in the country, I think there are two sides to this. One side is that if you look at the humanitarian situation in South Sudan, it is there and a caring a caring surrounding has to do something. But then, as I've always said, everybody has interests. It's not 100% care. Something has to be gotten out of it. We have got jobs for people. We have got continuity of different institutions. We have multilaterals coming in with their, with their games and all that is going on. In, in the end of the day, you realize that actually the primary beneficiaries of what is happening in South Sudan may not be the ordinary South Sudanese citizens. However, on the face value, it looks that we are helping the ordinary South Sudanese citizens. Therefore, there's a need for us to rethink the humanitarian approach. There's need for us to rethink development in South Sudan. There's need for us to rethink engagement with multilaterals in South Sudan. If you look at the recent development, there's this rapid credit facility that was advanced towards different countries by IMF. South Sudan was a beneficiary, but ask yourself, where did the money go? I think that is a question that everybody needs to ask. We have seen the audit report. We have seen efforts being made towards realizing value for money and value for all that, but then it's not being realized. to be honest, the understanding by the, the benefit of the presence of multilaterals or international agencies in South Sudan may not necessarily be for the ordinary South Sudanese people. Taking on um, your response slightly further, Merikaje, while we reflect on the resilient nation that is the South Sudanese people, which have come a long way and having now to endure what has now become their defined reality around the conflict. How are the people of South Sudan coping with everyday life? That's a very difficult question, and I will be lying to say that I'm going to clearly outline how people have been coping with the everyday reality of life. But I think it's because the clock is ticking, the sun is rising, and the sun is setting, South Sudanese, the ordinary South Sudanese is able to live and see the daybreak for the next day. It's a very difficult and sad situation because you realize that the gap between those who have and those who have not in South Sudan has widened so much. And that's an issue that formed part of the core of the liberation struggle. But at the moment, we are at a situation where that gap is widening and it's widening right on our face. And you realize that it's the same liberators that are widening that. And it's it's unfortunate. We always ask this question as ordinary South Sudanese that wait a minute, few years ago, during the liberation, these same people were at basic. And then today they were entrusted to govern the country with few people who tag along them, they have multi-million properties and they have multi-million dollars in their account. Where is that coming from? So I think I think it's, it's, it's a very difficult question to understand how the ordinary South Sudanese is, is living. But we're living because we're living by God's grace. 
It's quite harrowing, uh, Mary Kaju, and when you think about what that means from a day to day, as you say, as the sun rises and it sets, you know, they see South Sudanese people need to see another day. Anim, what are the unheard stories of courage that don't make it to mainstream media? We're used to hearing and seeing a certain narrative around the conflict in South Sudan. But what are those unheard stories of courage that really keep people going? And, and you know, I was reflecting on this um, question, you know, what are some of the stories that, you know, are stories of real courage that many people don't hear about, you know? And, and I just want to sort of highlight really two areas. Young people who are doing the impossible to have a livelihood but, but might not necessarily be, be seen, who create spaces from nothing, spaces to come together. I know of a business um, where they started, you know, Echo Bricks. And I thought to myself, who thinks about Echo Bricks when charcoal is, or is the highest source of energy? But also I've seen women who are incarcerated, for example, women who are on death row, they sit inside there. They have no hope of future of their cases ever making it to court. But these women are building their skills around, you know, beading and um, a needlework. And they sell this. This thing has become so popular that they sell the products, the products that they make. And they're making so much to the extent that they are supporting the people who are outside. You know, they're supporting their families that are outside. And I found, and I was like, no one ever talks about this. No one, this is a woman who doesn't have a future of ever seeing those people outside ever again. But here she is day in, day out, trying to make a living for her families outside. And we never hear these stories. So this really, really, really was um, a bit, even for me, was very touching. Because I thought to myself, we are abusing the opportunities that we have, you know, because here are people who ideally should have given up on life. You know, when you're incarcerated for death row, you have no hope of ever of the courts having redress. Or, but they're here struggling every single day to make sure that their families have something to eat. I mean, if there's anything that says resilience or Southerners, this for me was it. Absolutely. I, I honestly cannot agree with you more on that. When you speak of resilience, especially against such adversity, it really has to be commended. And one really needs to note these very important highlights which are happening, even though the rest of the world might not know of them. The human rights defender space is one across the African continent that is very challenging to navigate. Marikaje, as a female human rights defender operating within South Sudan, please describe for us the environment you are operating within, one as a human rights defender in general, and how being a woman human rights defender poses its own unique set of challenges. I must say that the, the, the space and where we operate as human rights defenders is, is quite, quite complicated. It is complex. And we always ask ourselves, we always have to ask ourselves, why are we really doing this? Why am I doing this? And I think that has two sides because then on, on one side, it re-emphasizes the commitment, but on the other side, it opens our eyes to see the reality around us. 
I must say that the environment is really, really challenging and we are not different. Human rights defenders, we are the same South Sudanese that you have just asked about their stories of courage. These are same South Sudanese who are living with people who have offended them in one way or another. These are same people who are seeing the the injustices in society. These are the same people who are seeing, who are clearly seeing the unfairness in our society and asking the question of how and why are we sub subjecting fellow South Sudanese to this? And that particular question makes the environment very difficult for us because the moment you're asking the question of how, it means you're challenging somebody who is more powerful. You're challenging somebody who has power over you and those that are at the most bottom. So it's, it's a very difficult situation. As a woman, it's even more complicated because we're coming from a very patriarchal society whereby even a woman speaking her mind in some societies within South Sudan is seen to be problematic. To others, it's being seen to be something that is unusual. And this kind of thinking, this what I would say this aspect of male chauvinism plays not only in social setup, but also plays in our institutions. So we find it quite difficult as a female rights activist or female human defender, human rights defender, you might you might be raising an issue that is of concern. But then when you raise that, the first thing that is being seen is what is this woman saying? And you're like, hey, I'm not just a woman. I am a human being. So I think being a woman and a female human rights defender in South Sudan context is rather very difficult and a challenging thing. And it requires a bit of thick skin. It requires more courage. It requires resilience. It requires determination because not unless you're determined the days you wake up in the morning and you feel like everything looks to be obstructing you and you have to overcome hurdles from the day from the time you leave your house until you come back home and those hurdles are both because of your work but also because of the fact that you're a woman it's it's quite difficult and um, I would like to take you from what Mary Kaja has just spoken about with regards to determination working as a female women human rights defender. You personally have experienced arrests, incarceration, and even exile from your home country. How did that experience define and perhaps chart a different path for your future in South Sudan? And how are you now free to do your work? You know, incarceration or, um, you know, being jailed, is probably one of the most difficult or painful experiences that somebody you know has to go through, and especially when it's not justified. You know, it's it takes you to to many places. It, you you begin to doubt yourself. You begin to think, is this worth it? But then also you reach there because it has you know sort of several different phases. It's most of the time it's done with the level of humiliation that you just don't think you can get out from. And even, you know, I consider myself relatively very resilient, but I can tell you that I reached a breaking point 
you know, I thought that my breaking point was getting there. And, and this is somebody who is highly networked. This is somebody who has um, a lot of resources, but has maybe people making noise for you on the outside. You know, you're able to reach out to different resources. So I imagine what that means for a person who doesn't have access to that, who doesn't have access to, to networks, who doesn't have access to resources, what that can do um, to an individual. And, you know, for about a month, you know, after I had sort of been released, I couldn't interact properly with um, people at home, even my family. I was somewhat um, nervous, cautious. I found that I'm self-censoring myself. So in short, the, the, drive, the drive to continue fighting, the drive to continue speaking up can really be challenged. And, and that's what it does. But also it can be an impetus for you to keep doing more. I know that organizing, for example, because when my, and I, I want to sort of, you know, maybe delve a bit, if you may allow me to some of, you know, the details. First, you're um, arrested, illegally arrested, but nobody knows where you are. Then there's a sort of attempted deportation and then continued incarceration. And no matter what you keep saying, no matter what the law keeps saying, nobody seems to be listening to you. And it seems like there is um, invisible hands that are sort of blocking the process, blocking the process to your freedom. That can really make your optimism die because it's like you are at the mercy of somebody and you don't know what to do to sort of secure your freedom. And while that can be a breaking factor, I think that it's also a real impetus. It's like, if it can happen to somebody like me that knows so many people that has reached out to, what about other people that don't have resources? So for me, it was a real, real drive for the type of, of, of work that I need to be doing, being able to continue reaching out there, being able to continue putting yourself out there, but being able to also speak up, speak out against injustices, speak out against unfairness. Lona mentioned before that it's, um, human human rights work, especially for women. And I want to add, you know, young and married women. They're sort of like a triple minority. Nobody listens to you. Like if you're a woman, you're already in that stage where no one is listening to you. But if you're a, a young and married woman, then you're just a girl. What do you know? What are you fighting for? It makes it di- difficult. It makes you try to sort of start self-censoring yourself, being careful, and, and that's the situation that we find ourselves in right now, that even when you want to do the right thing, you have to examine what is the right mechanism of doing the right thing. It's not just about the right thing anymore. It's if I do this, do I protect myself and do I protect those around me? If I speak out about this, how do I speak about it in such a way that they get the message without harming myself? And if I say this, do I have, do the, are the courts are a way for redress? Do I have belief in the justice system, for example? And unfortunately here, it's, it's not there. It, the justice system is very vague. So you're not sure that even when you go to the justice system that you'd be able to get um, redress, for example. So I think it's sort of a double-edged sword and um, such an experience can also make it difficult for your loved ones or your family to, to support you. And I think it's a very important aspect in human rights work that you have the strength of those that 
love you or your family because it can become a tool for them while you have your convictions for them they might not completely understand your convictions and so every time you want to speak up or to stand out they say why why do you want to make us go through this again or something like that so you have also work at the family level you have to help them understand your convictions you have to let them know that it's not just about me as an individual that this could happen to any of us you know so i guess you know it's sort of a double edged sword it's um you use the same sword but two different sides of the same sword yeah sorry i felt like i became somewhat a bit emotional so <laughs> yeah it, it's important um i i think your delivery and 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 reliving these experiences that you've you've had to go through and so unjustly so this is this is really the essence of 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 the message that we want to get across is is really how you know if the human rights defenders at the front line are really at 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 the at the receiving end of 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 the injustices what more the ordinary south sudanese who as you rightfully say doesn't have access to these resources and knowing the networks of the people um who are able to to come to their aid it is on that point i mean that i i just want to speak about and bring up the fact that there is an active human rights defender network in south sudan and listening to you you deliver on your experiences and what you've had to undergo one can only hope or assume in this case that there is a level of support that they do provide in terms of when things do become too much as you quite rightfully put it you do reach breaking point you do wonder whether you are still doing the right thing how has the sheer existence of this human rights defender network met by authorities and how also fully effective is it in voicing challenging and defending human rights abuses in fulfilling its mandate perhaps anim if you could touch on the issue of the support provided by the network and then marikaje i'd like you please then to follow on and speak to the challenges that do rest with the network in terms of how active and possible it is for it to fulfill its mandate the human rights defenders network in south sudan works under very extenuating circumstances first of all um they are a target in in themselves and and most times when you find yourself unjustly um detained or incarcerated or exiled what the expectation of this is that you would become a pariah even to those that are willing to to help you and and sort of everything is left at the mercy of your family or your loved ones because your family have a justification of of reaching out your family have because of the blood relation or because you know you're their responsibility to say but the expectation for human rights defenders is they have people threatening them as well so even if they want to to reach out most of the time they they organize for legal aid but they also organize in case you become sick or your health condition and also the feeding it's it's a, it's very demanding it's very demanding to be um incarcerated it, but it becomes very difficult they can't come to visit you for the mental health um sort of encourage you um they have people following them let's say they've come to visit somebody incarcerated they have people following them but i think that all factors considered they continue to do a very good job 
And I know that recently you've taken up social media. So people really, really vamped up um, the social media support. If it wasn't for social media, nobody would have known where I was in the first four days that I was detained. I could have been disappeared and no one would have known. But it was the human rights defenders. They never slept every single day. They created hashtags. They created online petitions. They created an online GoFundMe account, you know, for legal aid. They reached out to so many different levels. Even when they were being watched locally, they were being followed locally. They, they were able to do things that were directly, you know, risking their lives. And, and so you, here you are, you're already in a risky situation. But even the people who are helping you, it's very risky for them. And it becomes a very, very difficult compounded situation um, because no one really knows how tomorrow is going to be. So it's sort of like we live for today. We make sure all the information that we are required with is provided so that if another person has to take up this role, you know, we know that at this point you live every day as if it was your last day and they live the same experience as you, even if they are not in detention, even if they are not disappeared, they live the same experience as you because they are under the same level of risk. They're under the same level of difficulty. The security don't let them rest. They tap their phones. They will follow them. They'll probably scare and threaten their family members. So whatever they do, is a similar lived experience that you're probably going through, but they don't stop. You know, the, the human rights defenders, they don't stop for a single day. All the 58 days of illegal detention, there's no day that they didn't stop mentioning or speaking or talking about my name. And I think that, you know, that really must be commended. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, dealing in, in those extenuating circumstances, um, one can only commend them for their bravery and courage in, in standing by you. And, and it's, um, it's really noteworthy. Um, Merikaje, um, what has your experience been in terms of being part of the network and with human rights abuses, reporting, um, you know, monitoring, measuring the impact uh, of the severity of, of what is happening? Um, how, in your experience, has the, the mandate of the Human Rights Defender Network in South Sudan been impacted? I think this is a very interesting question. And it's a question that, that sends my mind to think of so many, so many occurrences. And as activists, we would say the aha moments, so many aha moments my mind goes to. Because, yes, as as part of the Human Rights Defenders Network, one is the context within which we are operating. And you realize that rights cannot be realized out or away or in exclusion of existence of systems and legal framework. We are in a situation where this is a country with very weak legal system and legal framework. And the, the entire system in the country is quite weak. So that poses a challenge to human rights defenders because then, yes, this is a rights issue, you're raising the rights, this particular issue. But then on the other side, you realize that the legal framework lets you down. So it will be difficult for you to push until realization of that person's right. That makes it very difficult for Human Rights Defenders Network to be able to implement them. Number two is expectation. You know, as the name says, Human Rights Defenders Network. 
So everybody thinks the network has a mandate to protect them in all ways. But the network has limited resources. The network has limited number of people who are actually there to stick them, their, their neck out for the sake of somebody. The network has limited number of people who will be able to run around and be able to look at different aspects because rights have different dimensions. So the Human Rights Defenders Network is actually having that kind of dilemma where, we, where you, we need to deal with the expectation, but also the mandate and the resources at hand. That is a very big challenge. And sometimes we find ourselves very lonely, to be honest, because when things are okay, we are very few. And the network is very thin and nobody even takes note of the network. And especially when the network is picking up on conversation or even plus different rights activists in the country are picking on issues of legal environment, issues on, on the action of political elite in the country. You realize that not many people want to support us. One, because there's money on the other side. Number two is there's power on the other side. Who wants to align with you? That becomes very difficult for us. And also as human rights defenders, I think my colleagues out there will bear witness with, with me we live a very dedicated life because there are several occasions where we come in to, to defend somebody because we basically know that this is a right and a person's right must be defended and, and they must be allowed to enjoy their right as human beings. That is fundamental. But then in the process, the same person shifts again and you realize that this person is on the right side, which then presents itself as a betrayal. And all the time we find ourselves in a situation where we are being told you are just exaggerating issues, but so-and-so is okay. And you see so-and-so on the other side, which you think they shouldn't be. And they seem to be very comfortable. So, so sometimes it's a very difficult thing. We deal with that. And we, we, try, we try our best to understand the context and understand our reality as South Sudan. Anim and Merikaje, you are both human rights defenders having walked separate but similar paths in your professional and personal journeys. Merikaje, if I could start with you, what started and propelled your passion for being a frontliner, fearlessly and unapologetically standing and speaking for those who are not able to? I think it always takes me back to reflect when such questions are asked. I must say that for me, my, my approach and my, my inner belief is that until you know your rights, you will not defend anybody's rights. And what, what pushed me to this point is, one, the understanding that I have a right. And this comes right from home. You know, I, I tell people that when growing up, I'm, I'm one of the youngest in our family. I'm the, I'm the second to the last. But you realize that in our family, there was space for everybody to speak their mind. We could challenge our parents and if the idea we put on the table makes sense the family goes by that idea. I think that gave us courage 
Because as girls, then we knew that if something is right, white will always be right. It can, it will always be white. It cannot be black. And there's nothing in between. I think that formed the core of my conviction and my belief that rights must be defended. And when something is wrong, call it spade is paid. Name it, nail it. It can never change. It will only remain like that. So I think I think it's a it's a point where one grows see that. And that is not enough. There is need to continuously build that. And that brings me to setting personal principles, personal values. What are the principles that you stand for? And if you don't have those principles, then you will be thinking twice because tomorrow you might want to benefit from what you think what you're seeing out there. Mary Kaje, it's it's really inspiring to hear you speak about the role that um, a parent in your life, specifically your mother, played um, even then um, before the days of independence. And, you know, what embodies, you know, very reminiscent childhood memories from your upbringing and what that means for you being a South Sudanese. Um, and in, with the dawn of the new country and the promise um of of a of a new dawn and, and and new things hopefully to come does the idea of freedom resonate with you in your current situation you've touched on this quite a bit and in light of the question that has been asked about your personal and professional journey with what marikaja has also just noted you know you think of a time when from your childhood something that seemed normal um, what is normal and what what is the idea of freedom to you and does it resonate currently? Um, I mean, I, I think about um, my child. I was a very active child. Um, so, you know, if it was the drama club, I was there. If it was sports, I was there. But I'd mainly I want to sort of reflect on my life as a, a sports person. I, I, I played a lot of sports you know almost to the level of professional sport but it's just something that I wasn't able to take on then and I just remember learning and I think even to this day why I continue pushing and why I continue moving forward is some of the lessons that we learned from sports is that you don't give up at the first try that you keep trying that you keep training yourself that you change strategy when you feel like you know the you know, there's a stumbling block or there's a sort of block in your way. And I feel like those lessons have been very instrumental in my present day and in the type of work that I do, where so many standing blocks are put in your way, and especially for a subject such as human rights or even women trying to advance in, in politics in a patriarchal society, you know, where you're not relegated to wife of or spouse of, but you're a leader in your own right. Sometimes it seems to be taken for granted, but it's taken away from you. And, and what that memory of my childhood, what those reflections, those lessons that I learned at a time in my childhood where I was optimistic, where I was invincible, you understand, nothing would stop in my way as block and I put the hard work in. Those lessons today remind me that if you continue working hard, if you continue persisting and persevering, that the future that you hope for, the future that you work so hard for is possible. 
And I always have the mantra that wherever there is life, there's always hope. I just don't sing this thing to myself. And every time there's that difficult opportunity, every time I face myself with challenges, especially in the work that we do, you know, I tell myself as long as there's life, I have hope. As we draw to the end of this very important episode, please allow me one last question. As we think progressively about the changes we wish and hope for South Sudan, and what is the new narrative that we would like to see permeate, what would be your personal plea and hope for your country for a turnaround, a cornerstone for reaching a different reform from what it is currently? And Merikaje, I would like to start with you, perhaps in two phrases, in brief summary, what does the dawn, the real dawn of a new South Sudan look like? It's important for us to take a step back and start reconstructing the social fabric in South Sudan based on values. Until we do that, we will not be able to protect one's right or enjoy our own rights. And that poses a big threat for South Sudan as a nation, because then the struggle, the selfish struggle for personal interest and the amassing of wealth, collection of common good for personal interest will continue and we will be able, we, we will not be able to realize the country that we force. Um, it's so sad that um, this podcast is coming to an end, but really reflecting on independence and what were expectations 11 years ago and what South Sudan is, what should be the narrative for South Sudan. I was there at independence, that they declared independence, and we stood in the crowd and we were delirious from, you know, the happiness that, that came with it. And it didn't matter whether I was from this political party or that political party or from this tribe to that tribe. And um, as the hopeless optimist that I am, I think that there's still a real opportunity, a real and unique opportunity um, for us, for each and every one of us to make a contribution towards the hope and the future that we aspired South Sudan to be. I would like to really focus on what each of us in our personal capacity, what each of us in our personal responsibility can do. And it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter um, if you're elite or not. Um, Is that when you have an opportunity to be in a position of responsibility, whether it's at a family level or organizational level or country level, each and every day you must ask yourself whether the actions that you do bring the promise of the future that you aspire to. And if every one of us, each and every one of us as a South Sudanese asks ourselves that question on a single day, every single day, I think that we can slowly begin to change the narrative. Anim and Merikaje, thank you very much for being here with me today and for sharing your stories. Your bravery, selflessness, and commitment to your country is truly inspiring. And as the sun rises and it sets, we hope that the tomorrow for the people of South Sudan will find peace and prosperity. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you so much.
There are a number of things that stood out for me in this episode. The hunger for politics and power supersedes the need to defend and protect the human rights of the people of South Sudan. Eleven years post-independence, basic services such as education, access to water and medical care are still not available to the people. Marika Jalona highlighted the fact that we need to rethink what development and engagement with South Sudan and international aid agencies going forward looks like. It seems that leadership did not fully appreciate the responsibility and magnitude of what the referendum and ultimately independence brought and meant for South Sudan. The challenge of being a human rights defender, more especially a female human rights defender, is something that really impacted me. My right, your right, our right, humanity is for us all. This has been Let's Talk Human Rights, the FNF Africa podcast exploring human rights issues. We hope you enjoyed it. The Friedrich Naumann Foundation Sub-Saharan Africa, FNF, is an independent German organization that is committed to promoting liberal ideas and politics in Africa, such as human rights, the rule of law, democracy, innovation, digitization, and free trade. By conducting campaigns, media events, seminars, workshops, study tours, cultural happenings, and training courses, the Foundation promotes human rights, including freedom of expression, freedom of the press, children's rights, and LGBTQIA rights, and engages against violence against women and capital punishment. If you are interested in our activities, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Simply check for Friedrich Naumann Foundation Africa.